Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. I'm always, I'm continuously surprised by what life has offered me. Had you given me an opportunity when I was first starting out as an actor to write it down, kid, what is it you want out of this? I would not have even dared give myself the kind of opportunities that I've experienced over the past 40 some odd years. It's amazing to me how everything always fits together, that there is this puzzle that becomes our lives. And it is easy to miss how the pieces fit together, but they do. I think we all have these moments of grace, I call them, synchronicities that alert us to the fact that we are, in fact, moving in concert with our own personal destinies. And I've learned over time to really pay attention to that. If I had to live it all over again, I honestly don't know who I would be the next time. I honestly don't. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. Okay, we are rolling on audio. Awesome. We are rolling on excitement. Hey, y'all. Hi, how are you? It's nice to meet you. It's a pleasure, Amanda. Well, let me introduce you to my husband, Christopher. Hello. Hey, Christopher, I'm LeVar. Pleasure. Um, Lovely to meet you. Yeah. Well, cool. I was, in, I was intrigued by your premise here with Labyrinth, and uh, I thought, you know what? I'm going to take a flyer. I'm going to say yes. Thank you so much. We are honored and thrilled. And what would you like to talk about? What would you like to talk about? (laughs) This is your show. What do you want to talk about? All right. Well, so as we've been wrapping up this season, we've been thinking a lot about how all of our lives could have ended up really differently. Mm Mm-hmm. In life, we sort of make plans for ourselves, right? And sometimes that works out, and sometimes (laughs) it doesn't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, people have asked, like, oh, if only you could do one thing differently and then you wouldn't spend time in prison. It's, you know what I mean? Well, it's not what happens. It's what you do with it that makes the difference. We are shaped by the events as they unfold our lives. We really are. Can I just interrupt here to say, swoon? LeVar does this magical thing with his voice. Like it's collecting mass with each word. I know. It makes me lightheaded. Editing this episode, actually, hearing those soothing tones, that gravitas on repeat, like... It's our ability to imagine that keeps us moving forward. Yeah, it's making me... Or remember this one? A story has tremendous meaning and impact on our ability to carry out our own destiny in life. Oh shit, Amanda, are you all... Uh... 
Feeling lost? Then you're in the right class. I'm Amanda Knox, professor of linguistics. And I'm Christopher Robinson, professor of poetry. And each week, we're bringing you through the labyrinthine world of literature. Check your syllabus, for this is is Labyrinths 101. Welcome back, listeners. It's been quite a season, hasn't it? Spending our weeks teaching classes and our weekends conducting interviews with the people of the word, as we call them, it's sometimes easy to forget how sacred the act of reading can be. How literature can radically transform us and the world around us. There's a fair argument, for example, that Justice Ginsburg's poetic final address before she retired is what tipped the scales and assured Hillary Clinton a second term as president. With our season finale, we want to acknowledge the power and sanctity of the word. And that's why we are thrilled to bring you an interview with Catholic Bishop and host of LeVar Burton Reads, the one and only LeVar Burton. As always, we begin at the beginning. My mother was the first person in her family to graduate from college. My mother is without question the most influential person in my life, bar none. Because my mom was an educator, she knew that the best education available for her kids was a Catholic school education, a parochial education. Are there any experiences with reading with your mother Mm. that stand out in memory? So my mother not only read to us when we were kids, she read in front of us. And that was the modeling that really made the difference. I grew up in a family where reading was considered to be as essential to living as breathing is, right? My mother always had at least one, sometimes two, sometimes three books going for her own enjoyment. When I was in the third grade, I had a teacher. She would go to the teacher's lounge once or twice a week to make herself a cup of tea after lunch. And she would give me a book and put me up in front of the class and have me read because I was the best reader in third grade. Mm -hmm. It was the first time in my life that someone outside of my family had identified a talent that I had, something that was useful, Mm. right? There was something about me and the way I was able to read and hold an audience of third graders that she recognized and As a teacher, as an educator, we're all teachers in my family. Like I said, my mom was an English teacher. My elder sister, Letitia, just retired from 35 years of teaching. Hmm. Both of her daughters, my two nieces, my son. If you're a Burton, you're pretty much in the education business. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, her mom's a teacher. Is that right? Education seems to be part of our destiny, too. Little did we know when we met on that study abroad program in Italy that we'd get married and end up teaching at the same university. So forgive us our braggadocio on behalf of teachers. I think that one of the things that teachers do is help us identify what our gifts are, Mm. right? And what our contribution to the world is likely to be. It's critically important. So having discovered early on that I had this gift for storytelling, It came back around later on in my life, Mm. you know, wanting to express myself through religion. I entered a seminary, immersed myself in that culture. Burton is a singular figure in the world of books. 
Having become the youngest ordained bishop in the Catholic Church, he did something highly unorthodox. He gave up his diocese in 1983 to launch a secular ministry of sorts, one many of us grew up watching on television. Take a look, it's in a book, a reading rainbow. It seems to me that you've carried with you this sense of the sacred that I think is there in Reading Rainbow, it's there in LeVar Burton Reads, the way you start off the story with that deep breath. There's a ritual to it. There's a, a reverence for the act of reading itself. Can you talk about how sacredness filters out to all the other aspects of your life today? It is possible to find the sacred in everything, right? With the right intention. And that began with my indoctrination as a Catholic and continued through my exploration of life and the books that I read. I mean, reading Carlos Castaneda when I was uh, 16 really kind of was a light bulb moment that there were realms of reality that we could not see and that one needed to be in the correct state, in the right vibration in order to experience them. That sort of esoteric world is real. Mm. And it has real relevance to the third dimensional world in which we live. All life is sacred. Every moment can be sacred with the correct intention. And I'm a huge fan of ritual. And again, that goes back to the structure of Catholicism. I mean, the mass, Catholic mass is a play, you know? And all of those wonderful cathedrals in Europe were built with sacred geometry. There's a reason why you walk into a church and you feel that sense of awe and reverence it's baked into the architecture. It's purposeful, mm. right? Mm. Exploring just different ways of looking at religion and faith has led me to the conclusion that, you know, we're all talking about the same thing, finding the sacred in life and honoring that in ways that make sense to us. That early love of books led Lavar to rethink what a ministry could be how he could convey the sacred to a secular audience. His precipitous rise and sudden abdication of his diocese caused no small amount of controversy in the Catholic Church, which, after much internal debate, allowed him to remain as a titular bishop. I believe that that was one of the first instances for me on a very personal level where I was like, wow, this feels important. This feels like I should be paying attention right here, right now. We're all here to express a very specific destiny. And I know, at least from my own experience, that that destiny has something to do with our passion, right? What our talents are. And if we commit to that destiny, if we approach it with everything we've got, you can't go wrong because you're fulfilling something that was agreed upon long before you took your body. I believe that we make decisions on a cellular level, not a cellular level, but a cellular level. We make decisions that we play out throughout the course of our existence in any given lifetime. And that first dramatic decision was influenced by a minister from another faith entirely. My storytelling mentor, Fred Rogers. Fred was also a Presbyterian minister, and so we really related to each other on that level. Fred was the person who 
taught me that it was absolutely okay to use television as a ministry, right? That it was absolutely appropriate to infuse my television presence with as much of the spiritual nature of my journey as anything else. And for Lavar, that spiritual journey is anchored in reading itself. One of the reasons why I am so proud of reading Rainbow was always, don't take my word for it, mm. right? I believe that if you are literate in at least one language, then you are free because your mind is free and no one can enslave your mind. And if you can keep your mind free and continue to learn after formal education is over, then you have the wherewithal to reach your most full potential in life, right? Sometimes I've gone back to important books or pieces of literature that impacted me at a very young age. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of right now, after, um, you know, four years of grad school studying poetry, I somehow was back at my parents' house and I found an old Dr. Seuss book and a Shel Silverstein book. And returning to those poems after spending a lot of time reading very accomplished poets and writing poetry myself, I came to appreciate it in this whole other way that had just gone over my head, how exquisitely crafted Dr. Seuss was. And Shel Silverstein. How the meter was perfect. Absolutely. Have you had experiences like that going back to a previously loved work? Absolutely. Without question, I have. With the Castaneda books, Autobiography of a Yogi, Paramahansa Yogananda's book, The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. I read that at the right time mm. in my life. And in going back to it, I always discover something new that has tangentially something to do with what I got from it the first time, but I'm in a different place. And so it lands differently inside of me. That's the power of the written word, that it stays constant, but its meaning, its interpretation shifts depending upon where we are in our lives, what experiences we are having and what we are looking for. It's remarkable how, you know, something can be written so long ago and have so much meaning and relevance to us in this modern world because we live in completely different existences. A story has tremendous meaning and impact on our ability to carry out our own destiny in life. Sorry, interrupting here again, but that voice... Man, it just collapses reality around me. The stories have the power to have impact on our behavior going forward. And, and that's a, whew, you know? Yeah, I'm feeling a little lightheaded too. Are you? I am a team for a while career in politics and I thought, you know, at this point in my life, I, I can be so much. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox, coming to you from Capane Prison in Perugia, Italy, where I'm serving a 28-year sentence. And I'm Christopher Robinson, founder of Prison Upgrade, a tech startup bringing the latest technology to inmates around the world. And each week... We're bringing you through the labyrinthine world of justice. Please pass through the metal detector as you enter Labyrinth Correctional. Correctional. 
We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? My name is Henry, and I've been a supporter of the Labyrinths podcast for some time. I can totally relate to the concept of feeling lost, and I think the stories have helped me tremendously getting through these last couple of years, and I think they would help others as well. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. We've got a special season finale for you today. No one knows better than Amanda, who's serving decades for a crime she didn't commit, that the battle against injustice requires incredible patience. And unorthodox methods, like the tech-driven ones Chris has been employing to help our incarcerated population contribute meaningfully to society. We're always looking for those unexpected figures in the fight for justice. And we're thrilled to bring you today an interview with Senator LeVar Burton, whose brief acting career in the role of Kunta Kinte in the seminal miniseries Roots led him to a political career that has inspired a generation. Most recently, Senator Burton helped fast-track a coronavirus vaccine developed by IBM's Watson AI, ending the pandemic in its first month. But with President Trump currently holed up in a bunker and refusing to leave, and daily clashes between protesters and police, his voice is more important than ever, both as an advocate for racial justice and as a calming presence in this time of chaos. We begin, as we always do, at the beginning. My mother was the first person in her family to graduate from college. My mother is without question the most influential person in my life, bar none. She was raised in Missouri. Her parents came from both Alabama and Mississippi. And she did not want to raise her kids in the Midwest, and certainly not in the South. So I was raised in California. Because my mom was an educator, she believed very strongly that an education was the leveler of the playing field for her Black children. And as such, I was the raisin in the oatmeal. In every instance in my childhood, I was always the only one or one of very few people of color. Mm. As a young Black kid, one of the things that my mother taught me was that I would have to work twice as hard to be considered half as good, Mm. right? And that was true. Mm. The other thing she taught me was how to deal with police when I was stopped, that I would need a plan and that I needed to have that plan in place in advance because in the moment was no place to come up with a plan. She insisted that I have one before I started driving around in the world. Hmm. Yeah, she knew you had that crossroads ahead of you. She knew. She absolutely knew. Yeah. She didn't sugarcoat it. I mean, Irma Jean was ruthlessly honest in this regard. Hmm. Yeah. She knew that I would go out and inherit a world that would be hostile to my presence just because of my skin color. She wanted me to be ready for that. But even so, the weight of that history didn't fully hit him until he encountered a book that would change his life. I've found that over the course of my own life, I've had stories come into my life right when I needed them to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for the first time when I was trapped in a prison cell and I really, really, really needed to escape. And so I just plugged in earplugs and I just lived in Hitchhiker's Guide for the Galaxy in a really, really difficult time. Mm. And it seems silly now, but like that silliness was really necessary 
in a really serious time of, in my life. So, and like Roots, was that also just the right story at just the right time for you? In my freshman year of college at USC, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, which was co-written by Alex Haley, ah. prepared me for the very next year when I was exposed to this novel called Roots and the television miniseries that they were working on. I felt that that was a sign, right? Hmm. That I actually knew who Alex Haley was. That was one of the first instances for me on a very personal level where I was like, wow, this feels important. This feels like I should be paying attention right here, right now. Am I having deja vu or did LeVar already say? Anyway, without any political aspirations at this point, LeVar was majoring in theater arts. In retrospect, Roots seemed like his destiny. I took a cross-country trip by car with some friends, and the purpose for me of the trip was to get to New York to see Ben Vereen, mm -hmm. who was starring on Broadway in Pippin. Mm. And we got to New York, and I went to the Imperial Theater box office, got my ticket for a show that night, and enjoyed it tremendously, waited two hours for Mr. Vereen to come down to the backstage door and leave. Because I, I had to meet this man. I was willing to wait there as long as it took. <laughs> I knew he was still in the theater. He hadn't come out yet. <laughs> and when he did, he was gracious enough to give me a few moments of his time. And I shook his hand and I said, Mr. Vereen, my name is LeVar Burton, and I really hope to work with you one day. That was in 1972. And I met Ben the summer of 1976 when we were working on Roots together. I remember you said something about how you, you could see who this character was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I thought so immediately and, and felt very, very confident. Having had Roots as my first job as an actor, as Kunta Kinte, it was like a, a bomb exploded in my life. And the upside of that was that I was totally, I won't say radicalized, I was completely educated hmm. in the telling of the root story about America's racist tendencies and what that meant for current generations. And Roots was an, an education not just for me. I mean, it was an education for America. And that story traveled all over the globe. And it sort of became a part of that chain of events that goes from the end of the Civil War and Reconstruction, and then the great migration of populations of Black people from the South to the North and the West. My family is a part of that migration, right? Um, the Civil Rights Movement in the 60s, roots in the 70s, Barack Obama gets elected president of the United States. That is a chain of events. Hmm. If you remove one of the links of that chain, it all falls apart, right? I think that the Roots chapter was a really important one because it sort of opened the door for a telling of the story of the enslavement of African peoples in America in a way that it had never been explored or expressed before. 
Roots also opened a door in LeVar's own labyrinth, away from the world of acting and into the world of activism. When I considered a career in politics, I thought, you know, at this point in my life, I can be so much more effective as a politician. Having learned the power of storytelling from Roots, he realized that politics, too, was built upon storytelling. America has, in my view, never been honest with itself at all about the story we tell about ourselves. We've never been honest about manifest destiny, that doctrine that created the westward expansion. It was just an excuse to steal the land and kill anyone who resisted. And that's exactly what we did to the Native population in this country. We've never been honest with ourselves about the story of slavery and how enslaving millions impacted not just the past, but how it impacts the present. This is a real seminal point, and I feel that it could be even pivotal. Mm. And boy, it's about freaking time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This moment does feel different. I'm 63, so I grew up during the civil rights movement. I was in first grade when John Kennedy was assassinated. Sixth grade for Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. Mm. Kent State was, I think, my freshman year of high school. Vietnam War draft was over when I was a junior. They stopped the draft. Mm. So these are events that are history now (laughs) that I am old enough to have lived through. And to see where we are today is actually very encouraging. Because what's different, I think, about today as opposed to the civil rights era is the presence of white allies. So I think that we are in a moment here where we might be able to achieve some kind of critical mass. I am wildly encouraged because of the energy and the passion of this next generation of activists. Mm. And I think they have this very well in hand, firmly in hand. And it's really gratifying to be an elder Mm. now and to see this kind of passion being demonstrated in this democracy. I feel like in this, this moment we're in in society right now, there's a lot of vitriol. There's a lot of negative emotions floating around from many corners. And you've always struck me as a person who has continuously pumped out positivity and compassion and and nuance and thoughtfulness. Is that something that you've consciously tried to do? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not always successful, you know. Um, I'm sure my daughter could tell you horror stories. Um, (laughs) but, But it is something that I am conscious of wanting to put out there in the world. Absolutely. I'm always trying to celebrate the higher aspects of our humanity, right? Mm. Because there is so much division and disagreement in the world these days, I genuinely believe that if I can sit long enough in the presence of someone, long enough at least for me to hear their story and for them to hear mine, that we will arrive at some kind of commonality, no matter how much we believe we don't share the same ideals Mm. as human beings or the same opinions right? Mm -hmm. I think that we need to spend more time in that space of grace, sharing our story, really listening, you know, without commentary, right? Mm -hmm. Listening from just an honest, solid place of curiosity Mm. to the other's story. Every time I have engaged in that exercise, I've learned a lot. 
And I think not the least of which is how it is possible for me to get over myself, right? Yeah. And sometimes how necessary it is for me to get over myself and to get out of my box and stretch myself and try and make room for a point of view that I have held outside of my comfort zone. Mm. I think getting out of our own individual comfort zones is what's required in this life right now. If we continue to stay in our own comfort zones and echo chambers, we're only going to keep repeating who we are and what we believe to ourselves. And then there's no friction, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's nothing to rub up against, right? Right. Um, no cross-pollination. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Without really listening, there's no impact on our behavior. I feel... Going forward. History is a continuum of events through the agency of time. Forget your lines? Don't worry, we've got the script. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And we're bringing you into the labyrinthine world of the performing arts. So put on your dance shoes, pick up a mic, and meet us at Central Casting. This is Labyrinth Studios. Our final guest for the season holds a special resonance for us. You may recall that Chris and I met years ago on the set of a music video. I was rapping as Wise Cracker back then. And I'd sung my way through prison, and as soon as I got out, I joined the Seattle Pro Musica Choir. We collaborated on one hit song, To Boldly Go, which, as a Star Trek-themed love song, had no right to be as popular as it was. Girl, it's the final frontier, no fear. We can start at Impulse Warp 9 when it's time to... Send your faces to love. Star Trek was part of our courtship, so it's quite a treat for us to have LeVar Burton, a.k.a. Geordi LaForge, on today's show. And yes, we will definitely be talking about the crazy news from the White House. We've made contact with alien life? Are you kidding me? Or is this just another tactic to derail democracy? We'll unpack it all. But we start, as always, at the beginning. Growing up, Star Trek on television was one of the few instances of people of color, people who looked like me on television, who were in positions of power, Mm. right? Seeing Nichelle Nichols on the bridge of the original Enterprise, what Gene Roddenberry was saying to me as a storyteller was that when the future comes, you'll be there, right? I've been a science fiction fan, a speculative fiction fan all of my life. And it was rare for me as a kid to encounter heroes in the pages of those novels who looked like me. So Star Trek was revolutionary for me in the sense that I could project myself into those stories. So to have grown up then and become a part of that storytelling mythos, I, I don't have words, really, to express what that means to me. Playing Geordi was and has been an amazing experience because I have had an opportunity to play this character over a span of a couple of decades. Hmm. And that's a really extraordinary opportunity for an actor. And one that he might never have had if not for a fateful decision to turn away from a religious path. Wanting to express myself through religion, 
I entered a seminary, immersed myself in that culture, and it was there that I decided, oh, well, maybe not so <laughs> fast. Um, let me get out there in the world and experience the world a little bit. I had set my mind and my heart on the priesthood so early in my life, I really was sort of at a loss at the age of 15 as to what, what I was going to do. And looking around at where my passion was, what I was good at, it was clear that theater arts was a plausible direction for me to go. Years before I ever got the call about Star Trek The Next Generation, I had done a TV movie. It was a bad TV movie, but it had a really wonderful, wonderful cast. And one of the producers was a man named Robert H. Justman. Now, I knew that name because Bob Justman was an associate producer on Star Trek, the original series, and worked very closely with Gene Roddenberry. And I used to ask Bob all the time, just tell me stories. Just tell me stories <laughs> about Gene. Tell me stories about making the show. And so he remembered that passion that I had for Star Trek years later in the 80s when they were mounting the next generation. And when I got the call from Bob asking me if I was interested at all, my only question was, is Gene involved? And he said he was. And I was like, well, who do I have to kill <laughs> <laughs> to get this gig? When you first read the part for Jordy, I remember you said something about how you could see who this character was. Yeah. I thought so immediately and felt very, very confident in my ability to portray Jordy. But the role of Jordy LaForge still needed some kinks worked out at that point. There were a couple of simple ideas that proved themselves to be unnecessary. One was that the blind man flew the ship in the first season. Well, that's a one-note joke. Right. And it really became important for the writers to find a place where Geordi could contribute. Mm -hmm. For Riker was the first officer, Troy for empathy and emotions, data information, Worf and Yar security, right? Beverly was the doctor. But Geordi flew the ship? Well, the technology of the ship insisted that it was able to fly itself. So what's Geordi's place in this circle? What does he bring to the table? And when they moved Geordi to engineering, that's when it clicked. Geordi now had an area of expertise from which he could contribute to the whole. Hmm. We're going to reveal our nerd cred here, but... Um, <laughs> In season five, episode 24, uh, the, <laughs> the next phase. Uh, and he didn't yeah. even have to look that up, I swear. He was like, you know what we should talk about? Season five, episode 24. Well, they, I'm sure you remember the episode where Jordy and Ensign Rowe get phase shifted out of existence. And The next phase. That's yeah. Yes. The next phase. Yeah. And the rest of the crew thinks that they're dead. And yes. it's such a moving episode, especially... Why? Why, why? why is that moving to you? Uh, it's moving in, in how it really highlights the friendship between uh, Jordy and Data is a huge part of it, both in Jordy's attempts to reach out to Data to show him that he's alive. And knowing how, know. like, Data's mind works and goes, how can I communicate to Data because I know him so well that I can find a way right. even though I don't have the ability to reach him. And then Data knowing Jordy so well to know what sort of service he would want for his funeral. Right. And it ends up being this right. really surprising celebratory wake, you know, Riker playing trombone. Yeah. I'm curious how much of that friendship and friendliness 
comes from you there because I see that as a through line in, in a lot of the work you do. That relationship was, I think, one of the key relationships that was explored during the course of the seven seasons and the movies, the bond between Data and Jordy and, and Jordy's humanity. I think of all of the characters on that bridge crew, Jordy was probably the most human. I think that Jordy, by virtue of his humanity, was more accessible to the audience. He was a guy who was really good at what he did, took amazing pride in doing what he did. And, that, you know, there's a metaphor, I think, for, for Jordy, specifically where Black people are concerned, operating with a handicap at the highest hmm. level of proficiency to the point where no one could question his competency and contributions. Why didn't Jordy ever work it out with a girl? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> he was clearly the most eligible bachelor. Come on. <laughs> For me, the answer to that question lies in the unconscious bias of the white men who wrote the show. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, great answer. It's true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gosh, least, darn it. That's how I see it, right? Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, white men are unfamiliar with black love. And so it's not someplace that they feel comfortable going. The engineer, the nerdy guy, right, felt awkward around women. Mm. It's a trope. Yeah. It's not actual storytelling. Even with progressive Star Trek, he had to deal with disappointment like that. It can be easy to get jaded. Were there moments where you felt stuck mm. and life felt very uncertain? Oh, yeah, there have certainly been times when I was in my own way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> well, there are more than a few. One of the things that I forgot was my love of acting. And so there became a point in my career where I didn't feel like I should have to audition, mm. right? And so... There was a while there that I was walking into these rooms with a chip on my shoulder. And of course, that energy was absolutely present, mm. and, and I was sabotaging every audition I was in. I had to really make contact again, reconnect myself to why I was in this business in the first place, mm. right? And it was only through that attitude adjustment and that refocusing of my intention for being an actor that I was able to really rediscover the joy and the passion. And, you know, now I just get me in the room. Just get me in the room and <laughs> I'll live or die based on what I do in the room. I'm going to give it my absolute best because this is what I do. This is my job. Have you ever been afraid that you couldn't do it? That I couldn't act? Or that a part was beyond you or... Yes, all the time. And that's when I know that, that, that I should be paying attention. Hmm. If something really scares me, then that is a clear indicator that there's something that I probably need to learn from this. Hmm. And that helps me move forward. I mean, fear is a part of life. And my relationship with fear has evolved to the point where I believe that it is necessary, right? So fear is a good thing in context, my goal is to never let fear paralyze me into non-action, 
right? Mm -hmm. And not letting fear prevent me from taking action. I am actually standing in my own power. Yeah. Hmm. Actually, I mean, that's really helpful for even me to hear because I don't know if I look it, but I feel a lot of fear. You know, ever since everything that happened to me in Italy, I felt afraid. Mm -hmm. Even just putting myself out there in the world and having conversations with people like you, I know comes with the risk of all the horrible things that I was accused of and that I went through being the proxy by which I even can have access to the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm constantly afraid that I am sort of got so many chips stacked against me that there's nothing good I can do. Mm. And I wonder, like, is it worth it to, to put myself out there for the sake of something that I believe in or that I want to do? Amanda, I don't think that there's any, any question but that every time I have taken the risk of being annihilated, it has paid off, mm. Mm. right? Years ago, I, I hung out with Tony Robbins and did many firewalks. And for me, that's a metaphor, really, of just what we can break through in our lives, how we can overcome our own belief systems about ourselves, right? Because my belief system prior to walking on fire for the first time, my belief system was, if you walk on hot coals, you're going to get fucking burned. And that was the reality. Through the course of an evening, Tony was able to convince me that there was an alternate outcome to that activity, hmm. right? And that when I did that successfully, it was like, what else am I believing that is no longer true? I went with a group of friends once to jump out of an airplane. And it was one of the scariest things I've ever done in my life. But once I was able to get over my fear of dying, right, and take that first step, it turned into this peak experience for me. The benefit that I received from facing that fear and acting anyway in walking on hot coals and you know, jumping out of an airplane really inform what's possible for me, what I'm capable of doing, which in all of our cases, we are capable of doing so much more than we believe ourselves to be capable of. Mm. Did you have any fear in the early days of your romance with your wife of say, proposing or something like that? <laughs> it's funny that you ask that because my wife now, we were dating at the time on the occasion of jumping out of an airplane. Mm. <laughs> and I really, I really had to talk to myself a lot before getting on that airplane. And as it happened in the order of it, I was the last one to leave the plane. Mm. And when I saw Stephanie leave, I thought, well, now there's no way I can... Not jump. I mean, if this plane <laughs> lands and I'm still on it, this this romance is toast. This relationship will really pretty much be over, yeah. right? And as it turns out, that leap into the unknown was an absolute metaphor for my relationship hmm. with my wife because it was a leap into the unknown. Mm -hmm. My parents were divorced when I was really young. I had no real model for what a successful relationship looked like. On a personal level, I had never had a relationship that lasted longer than a year with a woman. Mm -hmm. So I was definitely in uncharted territory. And th that leap into the void as a metaphor for being married really works for me because mm -hmm. you're not going to know it all. And, you know, we've been together now since, well, Mika is 26. We've been together for 
31 years. Wow. Well, congratulations. Well, we should probably discuss the news from the White House. Absolutely. If you were running for office right now, while this news of alien life was... I should have run. Was I supposed to? I I probably should have, huh? Wait, I'm getting confused. I thought you were a politician. Or was it a priest? Uh, that's not me. That's that's not my life. Um, yeah, wait. Something is wrong. LeVar, can you do that thing? Say something with gravitas. Um, God and time are synonymous. That'll do it. Imagination rules. Feeling lost? Don't worry. You're in the right timeline. Finally. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. You know, it's fuzzy, but I seem to remember now having a lot of fun with some clever editing. Yeah, actually, we should note here, now that the fractured timelines have merged, that LeVar Burton never became a bishop, nor a politician, that we never put out a song called To Boldly Go. I was a rapper, though, and an English professor, and I nearly became a computer engineer. And I could very well have ended up a linguist, if not for the events in Perugia. But those paths we didn't take, the lives we didn't fully live, inform who we are today, just as they do for LeVar Burton. I cannot argue with anything that has happened to me, positive or negative, because it all goes to make up the person that I am. And if, if I had to live it all over again, I would, so long as it means I get to be here hmm. now. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I've thought that as well. People have asked, like, oh, if only you could do one thing differently and then you wouldn't spend time in prison. It's like, I don't know if I want that to be true because I learned so much in not just what it felt like to be pushed to the brink of pain, right? Like to to ask myself every day, is it worth continuing to live? Mm-hmm. But also being put into contact with human beings and experiences of human life that I, first of all, was privileged to never even, like, the women that were around me in the prison environment were women who were much more neglected and abused than I was. I just happened to be brought into an environment by accident, Mm -hmm. and I got exposed to a reality of human existence that I didn't understand really existed. You you said I was brought into this situation by accident. But again, I I don't believe in accidents. I believe that all of life is purposeful. So Mm -hmm. I would say you were brought into that experience uh, by circumstance, right? Right, right, right. right. (laughs) By circumstance. And, you know, it's been said by people much wiser and more successful than I am. It's not what happens to you in life that determines who you are. It's what you do with what happens to you Mm. that really determines who you are Mm. in this world. And I really believe that. It's your response to circumstance that you take with you. And I would imagine that 
there is a depth of your intestinal fortitude, Amanda, that you did not possess. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. That's... Prior to your experience in prison, that you now have this deep well of confidence in your ability to withstand anything because you survived that thing. Yeah. It's also a recognition that she has about the power of storytelling to individually shape our destinies, I think, because mm. in that courtroom, there were competing stories about who she was. And yes. one, of, one of them was false but compelling. Right. Then there was a true one, which was kind of more boring than the crazy, salacious one being spun by the prosecution and the media. And, you know, having to see that power affect you yeah. and shape your destiny up close, I think, had a profound impact on her. I'm also wondering what your perspective is on the stories we tell ourselves about who we are mm -hmm. um, as a nation and the difference between a compelling story and a true story and mm. finding that balance where you find the way to tell the true story that is compelling. Because if it's not compelling, like, sadly, people turn away and they, they don't, don't pay, pay attention. attention. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that's really important to me as a storyteller is telling truths, mm. right? Um, and I cannot imagine, Amanda, what it must be like to have who I am as a human being, competing narratives about who I am and what I am capable of, up for public consumption, yeah. up for debate. I mean, talk about a crisis of identity. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> I find it impossible, Amanda, to imagine enduring that kind of torture. That's so huge. The only thing we come into this world with and leave is our sense of who we are. Yeah. And to have that very thing challenged in a court of law, right? Whew. I don't know that I could do that, girl. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know I could walk that walk. Yeah. I honestly don't. But you never know what you can do until you're called to do it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't recommend it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But you've integrated that experience and are finding the best in yourself that you can share with others as a result mm -hmm. of that experience. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not what happens. It's what you do with it yeah. that makes the difference. That's a lesson LeVar learned in three separate crucibles under three separate mentors that almost seem like they belong to separate lives. Alex Haley, Gene Roddenberry, and Fred Rogers, mm. I consider to be the men that I really studied under in terms of developing my storyteller's voice or my storyteller's identity, right? I will forever be indebted to those three men for being so generous with their knowledge and their energy. I feel like they invested in me and in the process infused in me membership into the club <laughs> of storytellers in our time. I, I see myself as a storyteller, whether I'm acting, writing, producing, directing, podcasting. I mean, that's, I feel like that's what I was meant to do, to share stories. I approach that job in the same way. I studied for the priesthood earlier in my life for not just communication, but for healing. Mm. Storytelling has the power to illuminate, elucidate, and 
enlighten, right? I entertained for a while a career in politics, and I thought, you know, at, at this point in my life, I can be so much more effective doing what it is I do than I could ever hope to as a politician. Mm. It is very rare, you know, to have what I call my three jewels in the crown, Roots, Star Trek, and Reading Rainbow. All three of them are examples of popular culture entertainment that have also brought something else to the table, something more than simply entertainment. Again, an application of the sacred aspect of storytelling in terms of its ability to bring us together and inform us and enlighten us, and even inspire us to live differently in our lives. The stories have the power to have impact on our behavior going forward. And that's a, whew, mm. you know? I love that. I think that there is a, a through line, right? That I get to live. And on one end of that spectrum is Kunta Kente. And on the other end of that spectrum is Jordi LaForge. And LeVar Burton, storyteller, is in the middle of that continuous line. Mm. Mm. Do you feel like you're no longer in a labyrinth or are you in a whole new one? You don't get out of this labyrinth. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like, okay, I'm done. Yeah, you know? good now. <laughs> no. Um, Are there hard decisions in your future? Well, I would imagine so. I don't know exactly what they might be, but what I do know is that I've learned that it's okay to trust myself, to trust my instincts, you know? Hmm. I've experienced enough hard decisions in my life and things have worked out. Do you feel like you've ever made the wrong choice at some juncture? I, I really don't believe that you can do life wrong, hmm. <laughs> you know? Hmm. Sure. Because everything inures to our own benefit if you have the right perspective and point of view. Right. I, I'm still sort of working to get out of the place where the most impactful thing that ever happened to me wasn't because I did something. It was just because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. And that's a weird feeling. Right. Like, I wonder if I'll ever, ever, ever do anything personally myself that will have a bigger impact in my life than just this bad thing that happened to me because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's very weird. Mm. I mean, maybe falling in love with this guy and, <laughs> and doing love is the, the most impactful thing that I've had in my life. Um, Plan to have children? Yes, definitely. Just wait until you have kids. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Um, How has kids affected you? Changes everything. Hmm. It changes everything because your whole perspective shifts. Hmm. You know? Everything involuntarily shifts to protecting that life, hmm. making sure that that life has everything that it needs to thrive hmm. and it happens instantly. I mean, for a mother, it happens gradually over the course of the pregnancy. For me as a father, mm. when I saw Michaela for the first time, it was like, I would do anything. Mm. And I know that it is through being a parent that I really have an opportunity to have impact on the world I live in by good parenting mm. to this soul. There are essential truths that are just so, and they are not up for interpretation or debate. They're just so, right? Mm. It is important to treat people the way you would like to be treated, 
family first, be kind. It's not, you know, it's, 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 it's not, not rocket, rocket science. science. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's called being human. And we, yeah. we all have the tools that we need in order to do that successfully. It's just a matter of choice, I think. And I think that kindness is the consequence of having examined yourself in the moment because the only sensible choice when you genuinely acknowledge the humanity of yourself and of the other people around you is to just be kind because life is so hard. <laughs> I, I genuinely believe that we are here to lift one another up and light the way for each other. And I'm so grateful that I've just had opportunities to do just that in my life in, in small ways as well as large. Mm. Well, well, it's been such a pleasure. We really appreciate uh, lending your your soothing tones and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and philosophical jewels. Um, this was a very philosophical conversation. I don't get to have those all, all, all that often. So this was great for me. We probably shouldn't risk shattering the timelines again. But once more, for old time's sake. Creating your own narrative is the luxury of being human. <laughs> it's magic. You guys are awesome. I love what you're doing. I love your personal story. And I love that you are aware of the power of storytelling in your own lives. It's pretty cool. I would say that you all are doing the work of the angels. Aww. Oh, well, that's quite a compliment <laughs> coming from you, sir. <laughs> Genuinely. Yeah. Yeah. Genuinely. This is the work. It's a calling. It's not for everybody. It really isn't. Well, thank you for being one of our mentor or mentors and <laughs> mentors. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I um, look good in, a, in in goat feet. I swear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. <laughs> Peace and blessings. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great week. You, you too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Well. That's the end of our season. And honestly, I don't have a clue where we are or where we're going. The pandemic has radically transformed society. Our democracy still feels like it's crumbling. And here we are losing ourselves in a podcast. That's okay. We're lost together. And in some alternate timeline, who knows? Things might be even crazier. Um, Should there be like a little like noise and then we're like oh my god run <laughs> <laughs> this is the apocalypse podcast run <laughs> um yeah we'll have to work on that so come on get lost with us find us on twitter at amanda knox at man under bridge at knoxrobinson.com and subscribe so you don't miss the next season of labyrinths we want to thank Steve Horlick for permission to use the Reading Rainbow theme song, which can be downloaded or streamed wherever you get your music. This episode was written by us, edited and sound designed by Chandler Mays, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Actually, are you still there? Who, me? No, the listener. Look. We really hope we can keep making more episodes of Labyrinths far into the future, but we're not sure we'll be able to. Yeah, actually, we need all the help we can get spreading the word. 
Seriously, if you've enjoyed this season, please give us a five-star review and write a nice comment on Apple Podcasts. It would really help us. Hit that tweet, gram, post, tell your friends. <laughs> in, in the meantime, we'll try to put out some special bonus episodes periodically until we launch our next season. And if you love to hear us interview someone in particular, or if you know of a crazy labyrinthine story, please don't hesitate to reach out. You know where to find us. Let's see, is that it? Is that, uh, I think that's it. Oh, wait. Happy New Year! All right, Chandler, that is a wrap. That's a motherfucking wrap. A wrap? Wait, you have to wrap now. Can you wrap? Do you remember the um, the rap for the Set Your Phasers to Love song? <laughs> <laughs> Girl, it's the final frontier. No fear. Well, we can start at Impulse Warp 9 till it's time to... Set your phasers to love. <laughs> <laughs> also, if any music producers out there want to team up with us to actually make a real song called To Boldly Go... Oh, my God. We're all over that. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Hello, listener. This episode of Labyrinths could be ad-free, but that requires exclusive access. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to become a monthly Patreon subscriber, which will grant you access to top-secret patron-only content. This podcast will self-destruct without your support. Was that too cheesy? Who doesn't like cheese? Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson.